and welcome to Weird Rap number five. This episode, we will speak to Sunspot Jones of Mystic Journeyman and Living Legends. We'll talk with Aaron Cartier. I'm going to talk a bit about MF Doom. I'll explain why I didn't do a year-end list. I'll talk about some recent music releases and a podcast recommendation. You can go to weirdrap.com for Weird Rap t-shirts, social media, YouTube, Spotify lists, etc. You can go to patreon.com slash weirdrap for the bonus episodes, including Anti-Pop Consortium, Cambada, New Kingdom, and Berzowski. Now, to people that are unaware, I think that the story of Mystic Journeymen and Living Legends is very important because in a lot of ways, I believe they paved the road for underground hip-hop as we know it. Before Def Jux, Rhyme Sayers, Anticon, Battle Axe, even before Project Bloat or Hieroglyphics switched from major labels to independents, these guys laid the foundation for what became the independent hip-hop industry. They were the first to frame independence as being something to admire and be proud of. The term underground hip-hop had not even been popularized or regarded as something positive until they created this scene almost out of nothing. I believe they're largely responsible for the term backpacker They were the first independent hip-hop artists to book overseas tours on a wide scale, and by doing so, they forged what would become a regular underground hip-hop tour circuit for artists following in their wake. And Sunspot Jones, I contend, even created the quintessential beat tape, as it's known today. And so, I am proud to present Corey Johnson, a.k.a. BFAP, a.k.a. Sunspot Jones. Yeah. It must have been 1998. I was going to SF State, and there was a uh, free concert in Golden Gate Park. I had never heard you before. I think I'd probably seen your stuff in the record stores, but, you know, you made a really impression on me. Your, your stage presence was awesome. And I remember Word. you were like, put your fists in the air or whatever. And I was, I always hated when people did that. I was just standing there watching. And then you were just rapping, staring me down, like, you know, <laughs> gesturing to put your, put my fists in the air until I finally acquiesced and did it, you know? And then, uh, <laughs> after the show, you, uh, you got me to buy one of your tapes. I think I, I didn't have much cash. So it was just, I, I think I paid five bucks for the, uh, Revenge 98 sampler cassette. Okay, yeah. So that was my first real introduction when I was able to take that home. Um, that made a big impression on me. I remember also the, uh, the inscription on the back of the tape. It said, I have it here. It said, fuck these record companies trying to use us like label whores. It's time for the tunnel people living within the underground nation to rise and let their voice and independence be heard. Dare to control your own destiny. And that, you know, it was meaningful to me. And that's like a theme that, you know, carried on throughout a lot of your music. Um, you know, that tape had uh, the Niggin Slump song. Where you going, where you going, revenge, revenge. Where you going, where you going, eh, 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 eh. 
Where you going? Where you going? Revenge, revenge. Where you going? Oh. Never should have let us in. It's over. It had Eli's. Yeah. 98. 98 is a generation to rise for us. Can't let the violence of our time disguise us. Every kid in America needs to rise up. Can we come together to make change? We might just. And then the the Living Legends uh, collab track voices. Yeah. He's a living legend. Damn, y'all fools conceited. Reaction to the title heard the first time, but quickly change your mind once the performance is complete. And uh, that kind of hooked me. And then I got your your Worldwide Underground album soon after that. Mm. The Firefly Rebellion track really stuck out to me. It's like, I don't usually remember lyrics, but um, this line was really impactful to me where you're like, grab a pen, Mystic Journeyman, we want to sign you. For a hundred thousand, what you want to do? I kick that fool in the head with my shoe. <laughs> That's right. And um, <laughs> that vibe, that whole DIY vibe was all throughout your stuff at the time the you had the unsigned and hella broke uh concert series i guess and the broke ass summer jam or unsigned and hella broke was a a magazine too right right it was a magazine but it also was the um, brand of the shows that i threw because there's underground survivors there was unsigned and hella broke which was the first series of shows i started throwing at jackson street uh, me and Tom, lucky, um, started throwing um, at Jackson Street Studios in Oakland. And then it just kind of kept blowing up to different places. And then it, it turned from like the UHB shows where it was more like showcasing people that could never be on the KBL kind of stage that, you know, was doing stuff. And um, that's when uh, it all turned into the broadcast Summer Jam because they'll never let us be on Summer Jam because we're not commercial and we're not even paying to even be on the radio like that. So we're going to have our own little celebration of our music. And that was Unsigned and Hella Broke's broadcast Summer Jam. So yeah, it's you know some of the greatest times of my life. Yeah, I really want to get into the details of this entire history because I feel like it's a story that not a lot of people know. And I think it's really important because I think you were really a lot more influential than people realize for the whole underground industry that came kind of after you. I mean, I could be romanticizing it or just imagining this, but I really feel like you did a lot of things before anyone else did on the underground level. Not only like making it cool to be independent, like being proud to be independent, Mm -hmm. as well as just going overseas doing your own um, booking and doing these worldwide tours on your own. Whereas, you know, after that, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, that became a typical thing for underground people to do. But you, I feel like you really paved the ways. Mm -hmm. You really did because like in a sense that we had do stuff and then we had kind of um, promote what we did, whether it's through the magazine or the videos or the shows we threw, we kind of turned it into a movement. And also, like, you know, I looked at it as, like, more like we were activists, you know, in the beginning, because we were activists for real artists to speak out and actually participate in the scene without trying to feel, like, so left out how the commercial radio scene kind of makes you feel like left out as an artist unless you have a hookup on a network, unless you have a friend in the industry, you really are nothing, you know what I mean? And we had a sound that was so different, especially coming out of East Oakland. You know, you're used to more of the the 
gangster rap. You know what I mean? That was what, you know, it's all about. Or or it would be the real commercial New York music that's allowed to get played, like I said, on KML or all of the, the commercial stations. So, like, for us just to come out and just be like, you know what? We're going to do this completely different. And like you said, you saw saw us at the show and you saw me, like, staring you down, performing. It's like, it's a conviction at that point. It's like, we're not going to... We don't have to prove shit. Anything mass promoted tricks you to believe like, oh, this is what everything is supposed to be. You know, our whole thing was like, we're activists. We're we're community organizers. We're going to put together all our people that like um, are like-minded and we're going to create our own scene. We're going to create our own thing and make it okay for us to make the kind of music we want. We don't have to be gangster. We don't have to make this industry hollow ass music that everybody's kind of like, you know, portraying and putting out there because it has no substance. I mean, we're trying to lead you to a place where you find something within yourself, right? You know, I feel like art helps us find our place in life. And, you know, that's just kind of what the whole movement was. That's why those shows happened. And that's why the conviction you saw on my face when I was like, put your goddamn hands up. It's like, no, we're going to be into this together. It's like a church revival, right? Yeah. And like you were saying, the the commercial industry wasn't, uh, there wasn't really a place for you there. And at all, I think... Yeah, not only because you had the the rugged, more low fidelity sound, which now is actually like become quite popular. Right. But you know, the lyrics were much more. Um, there was like this kind of honest confessional tone, and there was this spirit of like the underdog overcoming adversity, and kind of you had these sort of fantastical, I guess, sci-fi adventure sort of um, mm-hmm. titles and stuff that. It was just totally different than than the mainstream at that time, which was very much, um, you know, puffy world. Right. To take that, take that, you know, all that, you know. And like, that's kind of like, you know, I produced all of those albums, like pretty much everything in the beginning I produced, you know, especially Mystic Journeyman. I produced every album, every UHB album. I produced all of those. And it's kind of like the sounds I was going for were like it got to a point where everybody would always be sampling the same old stuff, break beats and, and sampling, you know, the same soul records. And I just kind of got fucking upset with, with the whole world with it. And I just started only sampling shit from the jazz station. I would just plug in straight to the, I was one of the first people just to plug straight into the radio and whatever was playing, I'd be like, I'd, I'd like test myself always. Like, it would, like at our house, at, at our house records, we'd be like, if you can't write your verse in 10 minutes, you're not on the song. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was always a contest. And, like, making beats. If I can't make this beat in seven minutes, I'm done. I'm doing something else. And, like, that's just kind of how we were. And, like, don't get too stuck on something trying to be overly perfect because there is no such thing as perfection. Just be dope. Like, if you're dope, you can make anything fresh. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that's kind of what it is. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we didn't get, you know, the, the props that you would think we would. But, you know, honestly, the bricklayers never do. You know, yeah, and that and that's another thing I think we need to mention is at the time the phrase underground hip hop wasn't even really something you heard. You really kind of created this thing out of nothing. So yeah, I'll mention like you've remained active. You just came out with your latest album, Cruel Summer, which is great. You're still uh, keeping this unique approach. Your your palette of musical uh, influences has seemed to expand but you still are continuing, I think, this theme of uh, blending like the hard and the beautiful, like beautiful melodies with like hard beats and this sense of like urgency. 
and vulnerability, like a, you know, like a fighting spirit at the same time, not like fronting, like you're just this hard ass, you know? But I want to go back to the very beginning and tell this story. Like if we can start from, you know, when you were a kid, what your upbringing was like, how you were introduced to music, how you were introduced to hip hop, how you first started doing music and just build from there and go into the story of how you met Tommy and how you started doing the the Mystic Journeyman and Living Legends and how it grew and blossomed. Can we start at the beginning kind of? Yeah, that's, you know, how long that story <laughs> Well, it, it can be abridged, of course, but, you know, as much as you're willing to go into it. Okay. All right. So basically it's like this. I was adopted at four. I started playing piano in the orphanage. Um, never was that great, but that's kind of how I, I attracted my mom to to adopt me. I was playing on, I have this picture of me playing on the piano. And like, um, that day she picked me, her and, um, my, my dad picked me and, um, I came home and I just was always a part of music. Music was always a part of my life. My mom always played music. She played a lot of old blues, played a lot of old R and B. She played some rock and roll too. And, uh, it kind of taught me to start thinking out the box right there. And um, like I lived in a, pretty much a, a black neighborhood and, you know, everybody was into, you know, soul and R&B, you know, um, but also like I had a neighbor, like a white family moved into my neighborhood and um, his name was John Anchorsmith. And he uh, he was into Depeche Mode. He was into the Smiths. He was into the Cure. All this shit that I was like, turn that shit off. That's terrible. And like after a while, I was like wait, play that shit again. You know what I mean? So like my influence just started to grow, you know? And when I started going to Berkeley High, I had like an hour and a half bus ride every day. So my Walkman was my best friend. So Billboard had a tape that they do every year, all the hits. For some reason, I got to the Billboard from 1957 until like, you know, the year it was, of just listening to all the hits. And I just learned how music can be anything. It's just not one thing. And I, of course, I was raised by Too Short. Too Short, you know, that's why the bass is always respected. And Too Short, like to me, was like stepdaddy in the sense of all my friends. When we kicked it, that was like in the car, that was the bump. That was the trunk music that we bumped, you know, that dangerous thing. It was just kind of like I just saw all these different spectrums of where you can go. And I was raised in foster homes, 75% of my, my youth before, like actually from birth till about 16, I was in foster home or living with family members. And being around all these different people, like sometimes they'd be white, sometimes they'd be Mexican, sometimes they like, oh shit, it'd be all different, you know, in the foster homes. And once again, like John Anchorsman, you know, they'd be playing their music. I'd be like, turn that shit off. That shit's horrible. Nobody want to listen to no fucking Kenny Loggins. I know all this other shit that I'm never going to listen to. But then after a while, I'm like, way to that. What the fuck? What the fuck? And, you know, you see the, the spirit of music is just like it hits you. It takes you to different places. And, you know, just loving that kind of shit influenced me to like kind of even do my music in a different way. Right. But when I went to college in Hawaii and, uh, like, you know, there's a lot of artists and, and, you know, musician kind of people up at, up at Skyline, you know, when I was in high school. And, you know, I wanted to be like them, but I didn't feel like I was cool enough. I was too busy trying to dress cool, you know, being I was being one of them guys. But I was always writing poetry. I was always writing poetry since a kid, you know. Um, I went away to Hawaii and I, I ran the, the whole student center, like where that was part of my, um, my financial aid. So one day when I was there, I... Uh, met this guy dj blast and dj blast was uh 
basically he was brought in from Maui to DJ one day. And so I'm there keeping my busted ass, weak ass raps that I memorized. Like I, I really was hella DOS effectsy or some shit. It was like, we can take it down. You know, like some shit like that. And um, he was like, yo, you should come to my house and we should make some songs. And I was like, where do you live? And he's like, uh, Maui. I'm like, Maui? Okay. And we're on Oahu at the time. And I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'll come. And so I come to his house. He lives with his mom. And it's hella funny because, like, especially in Maui at the time, too, there's not a lot of black people. And I come through. And his mom's like, who the fuck is this dude? And she was so nice. And I literally stayed there for a little this, this is the time when I was square. I didn't smoke weed. I didn't drink alcohol. Nothing. What year is this? Um, I say it's uh, early 90s. So I made a I made a demo at his house, and uh, it was like the most ridiculous shit. But like I, I missed all my Pippi Longstocking, Pippi on my jock. You know what I'm saying? I was like Pippi on my jock. You know, <laughs> and my whole thing was about being a hippie and shit. Like him, because I was all in the daylight and all that shit. And so Dell Dell from Kimo Sapium grew up right around the corner from me as a kid, and um, we used to always trade cartridges and like you know hang out and he sat in front of me in English class and all this shit. So we were homies. So when I went away to um, Hawaii, I, for some reason, I just started sending him my demo. Just like, cause he was like, yo, send me what you did. And um, he'd just be bumping and he'd be like, yo, keep doing that shit. He was like actually one of the first major influences, you know, my hip hop thing too, because he was supportive. He's like, do it, just do it. And he's like, I'm going to take a shower. I'll be bumping this shit. This is my shower music and all that. And I was like, all right, cool. So, Nothing happened in that demo, but it actually made me start taking music serious. So then I uh, went back to Wahoo. I, I got had a new roommate that worked in the studio, and I started making music in the studio with him. And then it got to the time where it was time to leave Hawaii, and I was a writer, too. I wanted to, you know, write screenplays and shit like that. So I was like, I want to come back to America or the mainland and, and kind of do my shit. And I came back, and I couldn't get a job writing for nothing unless I was going to do the boys in the hood kind of gangster shit. What's the only one, the typical. So I got all my high school friends and uh, we all kind of like got together, you know, and like I write all the raps, you know what I'm saying? And my boy, Alex got his mom to rent um, a keyboard so we can just make music, you know, you know, nobody knew what the fuck they were doing. It was like, no one even knew how to use a sample, none of that shit, but I'm ultra focused. We had it for like five days. First day I got it, I, I literally made like three beats. I don't even know how. I just was ultra focused on this shit. And, you know, we made some songs. But nobody really wanted to rap. I wanted to rap. So I was probably like a year ahead of everybody. So everybody was now about to go to college. And uh, it was like two years ahead. And, you know, they were going to go to college. And it kind of turned into a thing of like, nobody wanted to be in a group no more. And so I was in uh, Clark Kerr in Berkeley one day. I was kicking it with this girl, Molly, and her friend, Chloe, uh, had a, her boyfriend that was coming up from L.A. for the weekend. So she's like, oh, you got to meet my boyfriend. He's, friend. He's hella cool. And, you know, I think he raps, too. Of course, everyone raps, right? Yeah, whatever, you know. And we met up that night, and there was this other dude. He was, like, just playing himself so hard. With his girl. He's like, I'll burn my black book for you. I swear I love you, all this shit. And me and Tom, lucky, were bonding on how this dude was playing himself. It turned into, like, we start freestyling about him. The back and forth, me and him just start freestyling about this dude. And I was like, yo, this dude's hella cool. Like, I'm actually uh, 
you know, I could I could actually fuck with this dude on some music shit. So from there, he went back to LA and his girl's like, Yeah, you know, I'm talking to Tommy. You know, you want to talk to him? And I remember I was on the phone. I'm like, Yeah, dude, yo, you should come up here. That was just some stupid young ass shit where I was like, you know what? You should just come up here and and um be in a rap group with me. You should be in Mystic Journey because I had already had Mystic Journeyman with my friends and it was like, now Mystic Journeyman was only me. And I was like, you should just be in Mystic Journeyman with me. And he was like, yeah, okay, cool. That's, that's cool. And he was just always, with me, like very few people in my life were just like quickly to be like, yo, I'm with you because I'm, I'm just like, I have a lot of weird ideas or whatever it may be. I'm just always like, fuck it, just go for it, right? And um, he was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Let's do it. And, and he moved up the next month. And we I was staying at my, my aunt's house because uh, basically I dropped out of college. My mom was like, fuck you. So I, I moved to my aunt's house and I had a room there. And in that room, there's a little space from my bed to the wall. That's where Tommy lived. <laughs> basically, I would sneak him in every night because my parent, uh, my aunt and uncle, they worked hella early. So what I do is we come in hella late. My uncle go to work. They come back home at night and we'd act like he just got there, but he really been there the whole time. Then we met, you know, this guy Lachlan. And actually I just met him right before I met Tom. When I go out to Santa Cruz and try to do those shows. And he was like, yo, I'll be y'all guys manager. Let me be your manager. So basically we couldn't keep like hiding in my aunt's house like that. So we moved to Santa Cruz to our, our manager's house and Missy Journeyman was born. Like, just, you know, I kept making beats, kept making beats. And, like, you know, at first they were fucking fucked up because I didn't know what I was doing. And then all of a sudden that fucked up shit was, was why it was different. And it was actually dope because it was bumping and the bass was hitting. And, you know, fools was like, what the fuck? And somehow it just singled us out from everyone else. I, don't, I still don't get it to this day. That's I just want to make sure we get where you picked up the mythical four track. So all this is happening at the same time I met this dude, Rhino C. Rhino was part of a group called the Disposable Heroes of Apocracy, which was a group on Island back in the name Michael Franny, Spearhead, all that shit. And he became my manager. Disposable was going on tour with Sonic Youth. And before he left, he was like, you know what? I'm going to buy you a sampler. And I was like, what? He goes, I'm going to buy you a sampler so you can just start doing this shit. You don't have to borrow nobody's shit. Buy the sampler. And then he's like, I'm going to help you get a publishing deal. Help just get a publishing deal with Polygram. And with that money, we bought, well, we started recording at High Street Studios in San Francisco, which was very expensive. Um, and I got, we got a four track. That four track lasted so long it turned into a three track because that shit was just like plugging in them, them quarter inch cables in that bitch every day and just rocking the mic, wiggling shit, you know. But from there, that's when we we thought we were going to blow up. We were like, yo, we're finally going to be accepted for, you know, the shit we're doing. And Polygram basically dropped us. We were supposed to be on London Records. The guy that brought us in was like, you know, I can't fuck with you, basically. Best part is we got the equipment, but... <laughs> All those songs got trashed, except one, which is Sammy's song that was uh, on 4001. 
It's actually one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, but it started a new feeling of where the fuck we're going to go. Because like the chorus was, who gives a fuck about me? You'll back off me. And that's how I felt at the time. Because I thought we had made this album that the label was finally going to love. And they're like, actually, you're not being true to yourself. Fuck you. You're out. And then I was like, yeah, maybe we aren't being true to ourselves. So we moved to this warehouse and we just started making songs every day in the bottom of this warehouse. Me and Lucky. And I said, let me just go back to how I was with my friends. When I was doing shit with my friends, we had just throw parties and like people would come. It was like 30 people, but we was like, we don't give a fuck. You know, that's the start. And from there, we just kind of took over. Like we started throwing electricity bill parties, gas bill parties in our warehouse. And there'd be like 500, 600 people in this warehouse, in, in line in the hallway of a warehouse, like it's a club. And, you know, it just built our ego. We're like, fuck this. Why are we waiting and caring about what anyone says? And all of a sudden, we start getting booked in Frisco. We're the only underground group in Oakland, besides the coup, but they were signed, um, that was doing major shows in, in Frisco. And I was like, why are we scared? Why are we scared to be ourselves? Just do what we're doing. We don't need to fit in. They need to fit in to what the fuck we're doing because their shit is limited. Our shit is endless. And then so we got evicted from our house in, in Oakland and we we're like, fuck, we need to find another place to stay. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck even trying to find a place to stay. Let's just use this money and go to Europe. Let's just do some stupid ass shit because in the end, we're going to end up having to come back and do the same thing anyway, look for a place. So what's the difference? And once again, Tommy's supportive motherfucker. He was like, let's do it. And I was like, well, shit, let's do it. We started asking everyone we knew you know, anyone in Europe, you know, anyone in Europe, you know, anyone, we don't even know anyone in Europe. We're just really dreaming, right? Young and dumb, but that's how you got to do it. And so Chief XL from Black Alicious, we were doing a show with him one day. And I was like, oh, yeah, y'all be going to Europe too. Uh, hey, you know anybody out there? And he goes, yo, I know this one person in Derby um, who's like more northern England. And, you know, he's part of United B-Boys of Europe. Maybe he could help you. His name is Mick. Call that boy up. He's like, yo, if you get here, I got shows for you. We're like, fuck that. We're going to get there. Got on the plane, got there. And next thing you know, we're doing shows in Norway. Next thing you know, we're in Switzerland. Next thing you know, we're in Germany. Next thing you know, we're doing shows all through England. And, and sleeping on couches, not getting paid all this money, but actually just laying the groundwork to where we could come back again. And so we did that. It was the like most important time of my life because actually we put it all on the line. And we actually got denied entry into England when we first got there because we showed up with a bunch of blank tapes like at least 300 blank tapes. And they're like, at customer, like, how are you going to support yourself when you're here? And I was like, you know, you see these tapes right here? We're just going to dub these tapes. And they're like, that's that's the wrong answer. Like, that is the wrong fucking answer. But we're just young, didn't know. They're like, you got to pay taxes. You can't just do this without having a work visa. They're like, so you see that line behind you? That's where you book your, your ticket back. And I was like, no, we don't even got money to go back. We just spent all this money to get here. We just got evicted. I'm like, fuck this shit. Let me talk to your manager. It was one of those moments. Let me talk to your boss. And basically, they took us in the back. And it's like all these little interrogation rooms that are all clear. You see other people get interrogated as you're walking in. And you're like, this is going to end all bad. This is going to end all bad. But somehow, I just did that chop, 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 chop. Next you know, we were in England. And I was like, what the fuck? And luckily, we had the phone number of Mick, the guy that was brought, and his address. Without that, it would have been really fucked up, right? 
we had to promise we were not going to do any shows in England whatsoever. The next day, we were rocking a fucking show. In and, you know, you just got to You just got to push it. So that happened. Came back. Was going back again. Met Grouch. We were having our magazine issue release. And it was hella people there, actually. And we had rocked the show. Got off, said, you know, talk, started talking to everybody. And Grouch walks up and goes, yo, I heard you guys got evicted. He's like, when you come back, you know, my, my grandma just passed away. I have our house in Alameda. If you guys want to, you know, just come stay there, you just can stay there. And it just happens serendipitous like that. You mentioned the tape dubbing. Now, at the time of going over to England for the first time, had you already made your own tapes or CDs? Or was this like the first time you were doing that? Or how did that start? Yeah, we were doing tapes. But we were just doing tapes mostly to go to the Gavin or go to the music industry things that like, you know, Rana or our manager, or the other manager at the time wanted us to do, you know, to try to get the, the idea was get the demo to someone's hands so you get signed. And after we didn't get signed, we we're like, fuck this. Let's just try to sell these bitches no matter what. And, you know, it just kind of started that. And did you have like a mass tape duplicator or are you doing these one by one? Sadly, it was one by one at first. And then we bought a tape dubber that did a tape like in three minutes. Most of my days back in the day was spent dubbing tapes, dubbing tapes, dubbing tapes, going to Telegraph, selling tapes, make a song that night, put it on tape, sell it the next day on the street. You know, I was like, that's just how we lived. It was literally, you know, hand to mouth with the whole skill, you know, of just trying to be an artist and put your music out and be heard, right? And this selling tapes on the streets, too. I think we got to talk about this because, you know, the first tape I got from you guys was directly out of your backpack. And I have this theory that you all are really largely responsible for this term backpacker come into prominence because you were on the street <laughs> all the time in front of shows on the corner yep. selling tapes out of your backpack, right? Yeah. We like our favorite thing was to do was to sell our tapes to your fans while they left your show. Like we just stand in front, slang all across the world. That's how we did it. Yeah, and you are a you are a charismatic salesman. Yeah. But what I also want to know is like, what gave you the the gall or the idea in the first place? Like I know, you know, from Oakland, you already mentioned Too Short, and he's infamous for selling his tapes out of his trunk of his car. Like, was that an influence or was it the guy selling incense on the corner? Or Everything I do is influenced from Too Short. So yeah, definitely the idea of the independent spirit. But he was always signed. By, my, by the time I really got into him, he was signed to Jive by then. So his story of selling shit out of the trunk was more of a myth by then. You know what I mean? I never saw it, but I understood that you can't hit the street from that, you know, from that shit. And the reason we had calls, we got rejected, rejected, rejected by all these fucking industry fools that had no idea of the people that were even buying their artist product, you know? And it just turned into a thing of like, if we're not serious about this shit, then we're not serious about this shit. Like, you better go out there and sell your shit like you're serious about it. And that's the only way this actually worked. And like, you know, Amoeba saved my life because our fans would be working in a record store and they're like, yo, do you have tapes? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, we didn't really, we had like one tape, which is our demo. And I was like, you know, but we're always making songs. And I was like, yeah, we got tapes. You're like, okay, whatever tapes you have, we'll buy 10 of each one. I was like, oh shit, how much? $8 a piece. I was like, oh shit, that's 80 per hour. I was like, shit, okay. Well, that put me on the grind. I was like, we making songs every day. All the songs I have in the catalog, even my shit, 
We're in, I'm going to make series. I'm going to create new brands of these series. And that's when UHB happened. That's when, you know, all these different, you know, Mystic Journeyman and Living Legends. I came up with that name in my girlfriend's house, you know, and I was like, because we need a name. Because at first, we, I named this The Underworld. Went to Europe and there's another group called The Underworld, but they were doing EDM or some shit. And I was like, fuck, we can't be that. We need a new name. Came up with Living Legends. So, I, I mean, that's what I do. Constantly creating new brands, new places to put the same ideas, but with a new outlook, right? But another thing that helped us too, and I saw this a lot with other groups that kind of came up around us too. Don't get me wrong. I love being underground. Underground only meant that no matter what, we're going to get our shit out. Underground didn't mean to be janky. Like a lot of times doing the CDR shit and the dub shit, it's authentic and it's real, but you have to grow from that. A lot of people, they stay like, I'm doing CDRs for 10 years straight and, you know, Kinko, Kinko's covers. And I was like, no, you got to show a growth because I want to see my art, my favorite artist blow up. So actually, when we start getting a little money, I'm really good. I might not be the greatest, but I'm pretty good at like putting products together and making it look good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I was curious where you got your graphic design influences from because I felt like you did a lot with nothing, with little, you know? you Yeah. Well, these nice graphics, it kind of reminded me of like comic books and I was wondering, are comic books an influence on your... Big time Marvel. But my, my boy, Corey Shaw, another Corey, he was our next door neighbor at the warehouses at Outhouse Village. And like, he was a graphic artist and he really was good because he worked with a lot of different people. But he also was our friend. He had smoked blunts with us and chilly, same age. But like, you know, he made a mistake by one day saying, you know, yo, yeah, I'll make your cover. Let me make your cover. Because like I said, I come up with all these tapes. I'd have all these. I'm like, oh, we got to do this. We got to do this. He goes, dude, stop knocking on my fucking door, dude. Learn yourself. And that pushed me to go, okay, I'm going to learn myself. And since, since that day, I've never stopped doing, you know, what I could do for myself. You know, I'm always trying to learn. Because, yeah, because Lucky isn't really the computer guy like that. I mean, actually, no one in my group is really the computer guy like that. I was kind of the geek when it came to that. So I just kind of just, that, that's always been my shit. That's why even now I'm still on that page, like animating. That's my new shit, you know? Let's talk a little bit more about distribution, because obviously, first, it was just all hand-to-hand. Then you're taking it to record stores yourself. Was there a certain point where you had a, a larger distributor? And what part did the internet play? When did the internet come into your music distribution? Well, the internet came into play. That's when we started going to Japan, because people started hitting us up the late 90s, you know, from Japan, when the internet was first starting to really blow. And they're like, yo, we want to bring you out there. We love Mystic Journeyman. And that changed everything because went to Japan, it was like thousands of arenas, crazy shows back then, right? And uh how did they how did they get it over there in the first place though? Well, I mean, honestly, it was really doing our shit and selling our shit in front of UC Berkeley. You get kids from all around the world that went there and they made our shit happen. And you know. My boy Rasco worked for TRC. He was Rasco's soul father. He was a big fan too, but he also worked at a distributor called TRC. And he helped, you know, get our shit in that shit. And that's what changed the game. But really all of it at first was being on Telegraph and then literally showing up to your, your city and making sure we had a gang of product. Like I said, we show up with Blank's tapes and be dubbing in your city what we're about to sell that night at your show as your fans are leaving. You know what I mean? It was just always about getting it out, getting it out, 
And you're like, we need a magazine. We need people. Magazine don't fuck with us. So we're going to make our own magazine and we're going to let these people know what they're missing and, and the groups that they should, you know, and it's just like, it was always about diversifying and figuring out how to get it out, how to get it out, how to get it out. And it just, you know, it worked. Yeah. That's awesome. Very inspiring. And I, like I said, I think it inspired a lot of other people. Um, even I would say, you know, like hieroglyphics gets a lot of credit as being like this underground group from the Bay, but obviously they got their initial start from the major labels. And I, I have a guess that their inspiration to like go independent may have had something to do with your success with that. Oh, no fucking doubt. Cause we were in the same city as them. And like, actually after I think no man's land came out on jive, they, they lost their deal and they were kind of dormant for a long time. And at this time we were really doing big shit in the Bay. Like we're doing broke ass summer jam to the point where we're in San Francisco now. And it's like 2,500 people at broke ass summer jam constantly, you know, and they're just dormant. And then all of a sudden, you know, I think, uh, the the one with the pyramid that album where they all came back you know did which is an awesome ass album yeah, i just think eye. it just right third eye, i just I think we just help inspire the moment of like fuck the label same thing that too short did for us before you know he got a, a, a deal you know it was always about independence no matter what do your shit and i think they start feeling that because they were dope they are fucking they're legends you know Dell, especially, is a fucking legend. Yeah, that's interesting to hear about your early connections with Dell. I didn't have any idea about that. And, uh, you know, the beat tape is something that's become kind of popular. Media delight. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole idea of the beat tape has become really popular just lately. But I think you were the first to create the prototypical beat tape as it's known today. In 1999, you started the Beatty Delight series. Yep. Am I correct? Or was there somebody else doing this before you? They had beat tapes where they're beat tapes to give the MCs to rap, like trying to get people to get over. Yeah, but not presented as a as a final product that, that the people would buy. These were IDL landscapes, the Beatty Delights. They're albums on their own. Yeah, because I bought that tape, but I didn't know what it was. And when I first was listening to it, I was like, what? What I was confused by it. It took me a, a few listens to like really understand how you're supposed to listen to this thing, you know? It's a whole different experience. No, that's that's right. And that's, once again, like I said, I just, I want to conquer everything I'm thinking and run after it and do it. And if I think it's dope, I'm going to do it. But, you know, that's just how I am. Well, you mentioned Japan, and uh, I was just re-listening to that Arata tape, his first one, the... Uh, oh, yeah. What's it called? The Seven Seas. Yeah, that's a great one. Are you still in touch with Arata? Yeah, I saw Arata in Osaka uh, about two and a half years ago when I came from Bali. Hung out with him. Still one of my most favorite people in the world. I love that dude. Um, I, I was the guy that I would just be walking down the street if I just see someone I had the magazines in my bag. I'm like, yo, you should buy this. And he was just someone that I just walked up and said, yo, you should buy this. You like underground hip hop? And he could barely speak English. He's like, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah, you know, and then it just was like, wait, do you smoke weed? He goes, yes, I smoke weed. And then that was our bond. I invited him over to where we were staying. And he was just a very interesting, different kind of dude. Like he'd be talking Japanese to Japanese people and Japanese people would be like, what did he say? <laughs> was he already rapping before you met him or was that? No, 
just like I said, like my friends, you know, um, I want to have a group of my friends. A lot of times I force people to rap and he was one of the people that I forced to rap, but then he got into it. And like, I mean, whenever he did a show with us, the crowd would go fucking nuts. Like he was one of the first Japanese rappers in the band, but you know, it wasn't his passion. So his passion was really smoking fucking weed. And you, you all had a pretty lo-fi sound at that time, but his tape, that tape was really lo-fi. He wasn't serious about it, like, until the very end where we all like kind of broke up and started like having kids and families and not broke up. We were all living in a warehouse for a long time. This is when all this shit could have happened. And all of a sudden when people started you know, moving in, you know, with the girl, uh, shit just started changing. And honestly, we had less time for Arada too, because Arada's, um, his whole drive wasn't really a drive. It was, he was just happy to be smoking and chilling and being around hip hop. I mean, not as strict as Japan, you know, he was actually in something that he felt, real comfortable in, but he didn't make his moves really in time. For years, I was like, please, please, let's make, please. But he'd be like, no, 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 you know? And then when he finally did, he saw it was more like on him and everybody knew him from rapping and everybody wanted his shit, but he had nothing. So he just kind of pieced together, you know, the C7S album and, you know, which was dope, but it could have even been more. And he never went to the studio. Like I said, you got to keep going to the next level. His shit was all three track. Yeah, I remember at the time, people were just like, oh, this is this tape's too fucked up. And even for me, I was like, yeah, this is like, sounds like garbage. But now I listened to it just more recently. And it's like, th- that sound is really like pretty fresh to me now. It's, you know, you don't, you don't hear music with that quality. This is one of the first of that kind, you know, and it takes time, like, like wine. It's like, you know, it needs to set in. But I'm saying it could have been even better and everybody would have helped him, you know, make this shit if he was serious about it when the, you know, there's a small window for anything you do in life, you know? And it's not like people don't want to help you, but when the people can do the most help, you need to be there present in that moment because you don't know if it's going to be the same way later. You don't know if we're all going to live in the same house again and we're all going to be making four different songs in the house at the same time in different little, you know, spots in a you know, crib. It's going to be different. So you got to, like, strike it when it's hot. And, like, you know, he just, like I said, I forced him to rap. He didn't understand the idealisms of being an artist and all that shit. So when he finally jumped on board, it was just a little bit too late. By then, you know, Angels with Dirty Phrases came out. Um my solo album came out. Grouch's solo album came out. Like everybody was just kind of on their own shit. You know, it wasn't about crew as much as it was their own shit. And then we came back to Living Legends. You know, with Almost Famous, but that was like five years later. You know, and by this time his visa had ran out. He was like actually living in America illegal. And he had to go back home because his dad was telling him to come home. But if he went home, he couldn't come back in America because he stayed past the, you know, allowed time. And, you know, it just was just a lot of shit. But Arata is an amazing person. I love that dude. Yeah, another kind of side character I was curious about who, I don't I don't know what has happened to him uh, recently, but uh, Bizarro, a.k.a. Picasso. Rapping heroes on tape. My collection of tapes. I collect tapes and now they're all gone. 
I learn lingo through song, but what happened to my tapes? Where'd I go wrong? My collection of tapes, I collect tapes, and now they're all gone. I learn lingo through song, and what? He took many legend shit. Every album, but but solo shit. His idea of doing it solo didn't really push it to where it got mass produced everywhere. It's kind of still like on an underground kind of level where he had some vinyl, but you know, he never really, like I said, with me, there's like, I have 15 solo albums, which is psycho. You know what I'm saying? Missing Journeyman, we have about 10 albums. Living Legends, we have, like, like I said, double digits again. With him, he just kind of was more of a team player and just did, you know, what everybody instead of doing for his own. So you don't really see it as much of what's going on, but he has stuff, but he just never pushed it up to that next level where it was just mass produced to get his own shows and his own tours and all that. He was always kind of just part of the package, but he's still doing stuff. You need to send me a link maybe because I was trying to find what he's doing uh, recently and I couldn't find it. Just look him up. I'll try to look harder. So he's from LA, right? He's from uh, from San Luis Obispo. Okay. Well, a lot of a lot of the legends were from Los Angeles. I don't know. You've been living there. You've you've worked yeah. a lot with um, a lot of the Los Angeles underground from like Abstract Rude, AC Alone, etc. Yep. But I was curious um, what your interaction was with them during the late 90s, early 2000s, when the, you know, Project Blood was blowing up. Uh, I actually went and met them when they were still, you know, before Project Blood. You know, the good life uh, where they would all be. Yeah. And when I first met them, I mean, honestly, once again, Missy Journeyman coming from Oakland, who the fuck are these dudes? We don't even know you. Tom's the only one that kind of knows some of them because he's from L.A. But, you know, they were very skeptical. And when you come to Good Life, you know, they have this thing that goes, please pass the mic if you're whack. And I was for sure they was going to do that shit to us. So, like, once again, like you said, you saw me at the show, the conviction in my eyes when I performed, I was extra, extra that day. So I was like, yo, I'm going to rip or I'm going to fight or, you know, some. Because, like, this is how I was used to in Oakland, too, because we do shows with gangster-ass motherfuckers and, and they'd be ready to whoop your ass if he's whack. You know what I mean? Or there'd be a gunfight in the parking lot, whatever. So I was used to it. So I was like, okay. And I was for sure it was going to be bad. And by the time we finished our song, it was love. And from that moment, it just never changed. I have so much respect for those guys. So much. And the reason why, too, is because they, once again, go against the grain of what you think the industry is supposed to be. And they're amazing, amazing artists. Almost like jazz artists, the way they use their voice, you know? And I respect that because, like, you know, even you hear on Cruel Summer, I don't just stick to one style. You know, I'm always trying to go wherever the beat takes me opposed to, like, what I'm used to always doing. And they go where the beat takes. Micah 9, amazing. AC Alone, amazing. Abstract Rude, I, I can keep going on. Rifleman, amazing. You know what I mean? These people all go past and beyond. Agreed. Medusa, amazing. Medusa's awesome. So, over the years, over these decades now you've seen the uh mainstream music industry and the underground industry go through a lot of changes from tapes to cds and then the the cds to mp3s and the whole market transforming so how have you adapted to it and how has your orientation changed over the years well straight up like like i always been you know especially my group too uh 
we're people that stay on the road. I did a nationwide tour last year. You know, it's like go on the road, start your product on the road. You're always going to get the maximum amount of money. You know what I'm saying? Trying to just only be online and sell online. It's not going to happen because music's free. What's the last album you even bought or record store? You even went and bought some shit. It just doesn't exist anymore. And I just don't only make music. I mean, well, music, I try to figure out how can I expand the music? Like where else can the music go? You know, I also work with children. I also, you know, I, I have a, a nonprofit called Hip Hop Scholastics with my friend Atoko Garcia. And uh, we go to schools to, you know, basically, you know, teach him by learning music, teach him by uh, listening to the bump. That's what we say. And uh, so it's that. And like I make films. I just I'm constantly diversifying my shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And children's books, like which I'm going into next. and. Um, like I said, animation, you know, I want to have my own network with all these different things I made content-wise, you know, and, and get everything out. So the only way I've survived is by not staying in one place. Just keep trying to build and expand the music, expand the music. How far can you go with this? And how can you create a product that people could, you know, be a part of? Yeah, adaptation is key. Awesome. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the, did you say hip-hop scholastics? So it's me and my friends, my co-director, he is the superintendent of Marin Schools. And basically, we created a nonprofit and got hired by the Kennedy Center. We, you know, gone to many schools from East Coast to, to West. And like, you know, that's been a new thing of just, like I said, creating a next level of everything. Because like working with children is, is very important because, like I said, I, I wish I had a mentor, you know, as a youth. You know, I got I got him more as I got older, like Ron L.C. and, you know, other people. But I just think it's, it's really important to be there for the kids and, and show them how this art, you know, preserving the art. Preserving the art is by teaching and mentoring. Well, it's awesome to hear you keep uh, expanding and staying so active. Um, I wonder if we can kind of wrap it up with you talking about, like, what wisdom, what knowledge have you learned or just how is your view of the world changed from the from those early days in 95 when you were starting with mystic journeyman till now like any changes in your perspective that you've gained well before like as you can even hear from the stories that before i really i just wanted to participate and fit in and as i got older i noticed that the people you're trying to fit in with have no fucking idea what they're doing and they're probably not on the same mind space of what you're all about or what you're trying to do. Like, it's okay to be different. It's okay to go and try. Like I said, we got evicted and we were looking for another place, but no, it's okay to just leave the country and put it all on the line, live on a dream. So like what I've learned through this whole shit is that keep living on a dream, keep doing what you're doing, keep thinking that no matter what, you can still accomplish what you believe in your head. Because honestly, it's just so hard to wrap your head around shit. It's so hard for you to believe in yourself. It's so hard to think that you can actually do what you're thinking. And, and you know, that's honestly the the hardest wall to deal with first. Once you get over that wall, you can deal with a lot of shit. So over the years, I've noticed that, you know, I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be worried. I'm going to think that no one's going to like this. I'm going to think that I can't do it. But I better, because that means I'm setting goals for myself. I told my homie last night, find a pair of shoes. Basically, 
find a pair of shoes bigger than you in the sense of make a dream bigger than you and try to fit in. You're not going to fit in at first, but you will eventually. If you if your shoes is fitting, you're not doing the right shit. You still think it's small. You got to go as big as you can. You got to put yourself out there on a limb. Or you're just a fucking worker bee. Are you just going to be sitting there working for somebody else that's doing what you should be doing? And I'm, I'm over that shit. I already lost as a kid by living in foster homes and not believing in myself. Those days are over. It's all about now putting those dreams henceforth with everything you learned and, and actually execute. That's all I've learned from this shit. Execute, execute, execute. Focus, execute. And be happy. Now, of course, everyone in the hip-hop world is talking about MF Doom, as they should. And I'd be remiss not to mention him myself. I think he's very important for many reasons. Not only with the two KMD albums, Mr. Hood and then Black Bastards, but even more so under the MF Doom alias. I think he worked from a foundation of traditional and street-oriented hip-hop, but snuck in much more far-out elements, from the beats to the lyrics to the delivery, all of which served to almost subversively influence more conservative-minded listeners to be more accepting of the weird, the absurd, the fantastical. And just his vocal delivery alone, I think one thing that's special about it is the way it used pauses and rests. You know, whether whether he would break for just a single beat or a quarter measure through the insertion of space, he created more asymmetrical, unpredictable rhythms than were traditionally known. And this also allowed for a more natural delivery so he could fully enunciate his words and, and breathe naturally, which created this seemingly effortless and casual effect. And lyrically, of course, he was a master craftsman. He had rarely matched complexity in his rhyme schemes and thematically really had no bounds from stories of street crime to food to outer space. And as for the mask and the whole rebel, outcast, villain persona... I think this really challenged the superficial nature of celebrity and pop heroism and the typical egocentric hip-hop MC. And this, this sort of against-the-green counterculture spirit really served to reimagine previous conceptions of what an MC could and should be. You know, he turned the ultra-serious keep it real notion on its head and reminded us that an MC could be hard and silly and thoughtful. And with the multiple personas and aliases, it added to the idea, I think, that an artist can be multidimensional. Anyway, I, I hope that he did fake his death. Either way, he'll be remembered and his influence on hip-hop will last forever. So long live MF Doom. One man's waste is another man's soap. Sons fan base know the brother man's dope. A real weirdo. 
with a bug rear flow and the way his hair grow was ugly as a scarecrow he was a mass on a charge road grab on a rooftop with a large stone slab heads up You may have caught wind of the Weird Rap Discussion Gang. This is a weekly conversation I've been having with a rotating cast of commentators where we examine a different subject each week. We've been concentrating on certain albums or artists and discussing them in depth. We did uh, Inner City Griots, the Freestyle Fellowship album. We did Tricky and Diggable Planet's Blowout Comb. You can watch that at youtube.com slash weird rap, or if you want to just listen to it, the audio is at patreon.com slash weird rap. It's free, but to download into your podcast feed, you would need to subscribe to the Patreon for three bucks a month, which would get you all the bonus episodes, etc. We just lived through an onslaught of year-end lists, and... Uh, if you're like me, you think it's it's getting kind of tired, this like endless amount of lists. And personally, it just annoys me because I think it's conceited to think that one's own opinions are important. I think it's really a reflection of our self-obsessed, narcissistic age. I also think that labeling one's year-end list as the best of the year is not only just wrong because of course no one has heard everything but it's an opinion it's it's not the best and people might say you know the semantics of calling your list the best of as opposed to my favorites is not a big deal but in reality i think it is a big deal because there are a lot of people that are impressionable and take to heart these claims of what's the best, and therefore ignore anything that's not listed by these people that they consider authorities and that present themselves as authorities. So I think it's harmful to culture in general. And finally, these people start concocting their lists in mid-November, it seems like, and by Early December, they start releasing their lists in order ostensibly to get their list out before everyone is so fatigued by all the other lists. And that means that people in December who release their albums largely get ignored. And that's not fair. That's not right. You know, I actually go into this more articulately and in more detail in a full article that I posted at weird.substack.com. That's where I also post various other articles and a monthly kind of digest. That's a free thing that you can sign up for if you want to get that in your email at weird.substack.com. And now I'm going to talk to Aaron Cartier. He has what I think is a pretty unique approach to noise rap infused with a sort of new school SoundCloud rap aesthetic. And uh, I like it. So here he is, Aaron Cartier. Cartier, whichever. All right. I just started recording. Calvin just told me that's his real name. How did you choose the name Aaron Cartier? Um, it starts with two A's. 
So it'll be at the top. Ah, marketing. Yep. Smart. <laughs> yeah, I realized I chose the um, worst title for a podcast, is, or one of the worst, Weird Rap, you know, way down at the bottom. Oh, damn. Think about just adding like a hashtag or an exclamation mark at the beginning. We'll see. Trick them that way. <laughs> so yeah, man, I wanted to talk to you because I... Yeah, I was very curious about what was going on behind the scenes. Basically, first, I saw your video about probably like six months ago, the King Tap video. And I was like, wow, this is something different. You know, it was like catchy, a lot of spirit in the vocals and just really interesting, noisy, instrumental. I think uh, that was produced by Young Skirt or something. Who produced yeah, that? Yeah, young, yeah, it was uh, Young Skirt. I think he did it on his live stream, but it was with a loop that was made by Umru. So it was kind of a collab between the both of them. Okay. And another thing that caught my ear with that is you were doing mostly um, falsetto vocals in that. And I was kind of interested at the time of this, what I saw as possibly like a trend with 65 or six four five AR and Chip the Black Boy and some other people were doing like these mm. squeak rap vocals. Was that a was that on your radar at all? Oh, um, not really. I I will say like um I had literally just got done like running, so like I had ran probably like three miles and I was bumping um you know the artist Zay Loopers out of Detroit. Yeah, yeah. I just, he had just dropped a Gremlins album and I just got done. I listened to it like probably two times through. And then I get back to the crib and Umru sent this beat. I was like, fuck it, let's go. And like, I don't know. I guess like if there was any influence, it was probably that Gremlins album. But um, yeah, I don't know. Because I remember I did it a few times. I did the vocals a few times. And at first it was just that King Tap, Won't Tap, King Tap, and just like a regular voice. But I was like, fuck it, like put some sauce on it. Like just try and have fun, you know? Yeah. It's very catchy. Um, at that point, I subscribed to your YouTube and I was like, all right, I'm going to keep tabs on this guy, see what else he's doing. Thank you. You came out with the track Money, which was like super noisy and more chaotic. And I was like, all right, this guy's on something different. Then you had the song You Are Loved, which not my cup of tea like sonically, but in the music video, I had to ask you because you, you start going into tears. Like, were you holding an onion below your face or what was going on with that video? <laughs> no, like when I first wrote that song, I cried too. Like, it's just, um, I don't know. I feel like it applies to a lot of different situations I never really got to cry about. So um, I was just kind of like, that song makes me think of those things. So. When I was working on a video, I was just like, I felt myself tearing up. I was like, fuck it, like, let it go. Then you had the song Like Dis, which I was really taken by because I loved hearing the way that um when the kick would come in it would mute out your vocals and you know this is something that happens accidentally and i was like i don't know if this is on accident or on purpose 
But I think uh, Tony, it's, uh, I think it's Don't Love Me or Don't Love Tony is is what he goes by online. But oh, dude, Tony, we sent it to him for the mix. And um, the, all that sort of that aspect of it that you're talking about was, was sort of added in there uh, okay. in, the, in the mixing aspect of it. Yeah. Tony killed that shit. Yeah, because I heard you do it in another song too. The uh, Cartier Evils title track. I think it happens in that one too. Yeah, yeah I was just familiar with that happening like by accident on like four track recordings, and it was something that like I try to avoid. And oh, something for, oh con- you, you recall four track? Back back in the days, yeah. But uh, you know, now with a computer, it's hard to get that effect. So I was impressed. Uh, just turn it up. That's all. <laughs> just turn it up. That's it. And then moves. That's like the noisiest, wildest one. I was like, okay, this guy's seriously into some ins- like experimental, like noise shit. I was curious, like, what's your influence as far as this extreme noise out there kind of a sound? You know, when did you get into that? How'd you get into that style? Because it's most of the rest of it seems more like hip-hop and R&B oriented. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, y'all don't hear the songs I don't upload. <laughs> like, so that's the thing. It's like, it seems like I just found that like that sound tends to be what people who follow me are into. So those tend to be the ones that get put out. But yeah, I mean, in terms of influences, on a, on a noise tip, I'm not like super well-versed. I feel like there's this um Sword Heaven. I don't know if you're familiar with Sword Heaven. No. That that would probably be my go-to noise act. Also, um, mm. the Neptune. I don't know if you're familiar with the Neptune. The producers, the Neptunes. You mean? No, not the Neptunes. Though they they're a huge inspiration as well. But the Neptune. I just remember somebody in high school put me on it. Um, and like I did a deep dive on that whole shit. But um, I don't know. I just. Literally, I'm just like playing with the sounds and like, oh shit, that's like energy, whatever. Like, if I'm yeah. feeling a way, I'm just like, oh, let me just put the sound down that, that feels that way. And then that's it. It's not, I'm not super educated on all the different genres and shit, you know? Yeah. And then, then what kind of tracks are you not putting out? You said you, you got a lot of stuff that you don't release. Man, all type of shit. Like, my favorite type of music that I just listen to on me is like electronic type stuff. So, I, like, I'll bump Burial, Fred again. Tom York, like, like those are the type of vibes like I listen to, but yeah. <laughs> that's not like the people follow me online. If I start putting shit up like that, like people be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like people ain't trying to hear that from me. So like I'll make those songs for me and like I'll upload them on my little side account for people that are interested. Figured I'd just cut in here. Post interview, I did a little more research on uh, Aaron Cartier and his side projects. If you're curious to hear what else he's doing, you could check out soundcloud.com slash calvin james lewis and then i found through that he's got a side project called dakota which is a really cool kind of more folky lo-fi stuff And 
then Young Blackmail is another project which is more like noisy trap, almost like a punk rock edge to it. Uh, you can find all of those projects on SoundCloud. So what can we expect next from you? I got two more rap albums. I got a pop album. I'm producing a pop group. And potentially one or two solo albums I'm working on with some Nashville folks. Now, what kind of a, what kind of a style can we expect of these rap albums? Is it going to be in the vein of the noise shit? Or are you going a different direction or what? So there'll be one, Smile Season. That one's going to be sort of like the song Window off my last album. Sort of like happy-go-lucky music, but a little bit quirky, a little danceable. There's going to be one, Boomin' Onion. That's going to be the more distorted, more harsh. Money's going to go on that one, so it'll be songs kind of in that vein. And then there'll be a pop album, so far untitled, and that one is just just catchy, clubby kind of pop records. Yeah. Where can they find you? Aaron Cartier, bestrapper.com. Now, normally, I would recommend a hip-hop podcast that I like at this point, but this time, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, I want to recommend a political podcast. You know, when where, where my political leanings lie is that basically, I don't subscribe to any particular ideology. I believe in striving for harmony and diversity. I'm against imperialism, colonialism, and war. I'm anti-racist. I'm anti-fascist. I'm generally anti-authoritarian. And I believe in a balance between open-mindedness and skepticism. As we're entering what I would call the deep fake age, where information is becoming more and more dubious, and the truth is getting harder and harder to ascertain, and trustworthy news sources seem to be harder and harder to find, there's one podcast that I can confidently recommend to anyone of any political persuasion. It's called Media Roots Radio. I feel like it's truly nonpartisan. They've been just as critical, for example, towards Trump and the right as they have towards Obama, Biden, and the Democrats. They're independent, not that that's necessarily a marker of integrity as there's a lot of independent news journalism these days, which is just horseshit, if you ask me. But they are independent. The entirety of their team consists of two people, a brother and sister, Robbie and Abby Martin. They rely on firsthand, thorough research they don't seem to have any certain political agenda or ideology that they're pushing. They are not afraid to admit when they don't know something, which I think is hugely important that so many journalists refuse to do. And they have a reasonably high-quality production value. And they have a proven track record of integrity. Uh, they've been doing this for over a decade. So once again, Media Roots Radio. Highly recommended. And now, recent music releases that I've enjoyed. This guy keeps changing his name and doesn't promote 
I think otherwise he would have a much larger following. This album, he's calling himself Spire Jump. He's also been known as Wildberry Zaibatsu and Okami Ghost Hack, Anubis Doji, Omega Red, etc. And um, I just think he's amazing. But anyway, his new album is called Granville 31. And then Moore Mother and Billy Woods released the album Brass in December, so everyone forgot to put it on their best of lists. But um, if I did a best of list, it would probably be on it. I haven't properly absorbed it yet, but my first impressions are that it's kind of like a, got a noise jazz sort of influence, but much more uh, rap oriented than most of Moore Mother's work tends to be with Billy Woods at his usual level of amazing lyricism. And the two voices balance and work off of each other really well. The beats are a great balance again of experimental avant-garde and more traditional hip-hop elements the zoo had a decapitated giraffe a dedicated staff of volunteers the acid was bad the gift shop was packed Congolese hands chopped and dropped in a gift bag and also Rap Ferreira just released the Bob's Son album, which I haven't spent a lot of time yet with either, but I think I kind of prefer other work where he has a more full-bodied voice, and this is a more kind of reserved, soft-spoken, easy-listening style. But... uh what I really like about this is the way he presented it in a virtual cafe. You can go to this virtual cafe to listen to the album, in which you're also introduced to the work of Bob Kaufman, who the album is dedicated to and based around. And I had never uh, been exposed to this guy before, but he seems to be like a really interesting, wild street poet from the beat generation and yeah i really enjoyed the uh pdfs and video links of his work that the cafe includes so i highly recommend you check out that album in that format Gentle inquiries, special sentencing, extra questioning, played the vegetables, summer squash, bummer thoughts, guess I'll start exercising, I mean accessorizing, next to the next in line, perpetually, pep talks with pimp seed and dreams, lint, lint, loose leaf cream, yam chips, hemp and a handful of seeds, spamming control V. Alright, thank you for listening. Thank you to my dear sweet patrons, I really appreciate you. 
You can become one yourself at patreon.com slash weirdrap and get all the bonus content. You can go to weirdrap.com slash rating to rate and review. That would be nice. Weird Rap is the handle on all the social medias. Weirdrap.bandcamp.com is where you'll find our original releases, including Little Ghost Rider, the Weird Rap Remix Collection, and the Interdependence Compilation Album. You can order yourself a beautiful, quality Weird Rap t-shirt at weirdrap.com. Until next time, let's all strive to be more like MF Doom by denying our selfie-oriented, narcissistic tendencies and nurturing the beauty inside. Let's dare to allow our true selves to shine through and make the world weirder. Weirder.